And like it began. It began with a roar, and it finishes with a roar. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations. This is your host, Adam Rosh, and I want to thank you for joining me. Today's episode is with Sarah Schlepper, one of the most inspiring people that I know. Before there was Lindsey Vaughn, before there was Michaela Schifrin, there was Sarah Schlepper. Sarah is a five-time Olympian. She skied in four Olympics for the United States of America and one for Mexico. Yep, you heard that correctly. Mexico has a ski racing team. And what's most amazing is that Sarah is still competitively skiing. During her time with the U.S. ski team, Sarah had four World Cup podium finishes, and she won seven American championships. And in 2005, she finished fifth in the World Cup slalom standings and 17th overall in the world. Sarah's journey is truly remarkable. She started ski racing relatively late in her life at age 11, whereas most elite ski racers start typically around six or seven years old or even much younger than that. And it was in her adolescent years that Sarah began training with the legendary coach, Eric Seiler, who also trained Lindsey Vaughn and dozens of other women on the U.S. ski team. Sarah's career with the U.S. ski team spanned 15 years, and when she retired in 2011, she did it in style by skiing her last World Cup run wearing a beautiful dress. But that's not all. Midway down the run, Sarah picked up her four-year-old son at the time, Lasse, and carried him through the finish line. If you don't believe me, you could see this all for yourself on YouTube. I'll include the link in the blog post. While many people know about Sarah's remarkable skiing career, her famous final World Cup race and her adrenaline-releasing lioness roar before every race, that just scratches the surface of who Sarah is as a person. I met Sarah a few years ago when my daughter Ruby attended the Eric Seiler Ski Camp in Mount Hood, Oregon. Sarah, who was once the athlete being coached by the legendary Seiler, now became a coach herself for so many rising young athletes. And while there is no doubt that Sarah has a wealth of knowledge to share with her students, what impressed me the most from the moment I met her at the Seiler camp was the way people gravitated towards her and how she was able to motivate people to do things that they never thought was otherwise possible. So just as she inspired the members of the U.S. Women's Ski Team for so many years, Sarah inspired me from the moment we met. In fact, she's even become an inspiration to my family. Oftentimes in our household, you'll hear one of us say to our children, what would Sarah do in this situation? That's true. (laughs) 
In this episode, we touched on so many topics. And whether you are a ski racer, a young athlete dreaming of the Olympics, a parent of a young ski racer, or simply someone who loves to learn, I promise you this conversation does not disappoint. And there is a ton of actionable information to take away. Now, this introduction could go on and on and on as there is so much to say about Sarah Schlepper's impact on the world. But I'll leave this to Sarah. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to the lioness herself, Sarah Schlepper. All right. Welcome to the show, Sarah. How are you? Good, Adam. How are you? I'm good. good. I'm good. Chat. It's great. It's great to be talking and I love the noises that I'm hearing on your end here. You have birds and the wild chirping and making noise and, and you're in Mexico right now, right? Yeah, we're in Puerto Escondido, the state of Oaxaca. Um, I I came outside because inside I have the fans going and there, there might be construction going outside at some point, but I figured this was the most peaceful spot to oh, do the interview. Yeah, it definitely sounds peaceful. And I got to tell you, um, I, I've always known something, you know, a little about you and your history, but in preparing for this interview, I absolutely, I loved, I, it was the, the best week of my life because I got to watch amazing <laughs> ski videos, read articles that were like just coming on the internet back in 2008 and, you know, the early days of the internet and learning all about uh, U.S. skiing, uh, women's skiing in particular, uh, learning about your journey. And I was really excited. I'm really excited to do this interview. Um, I have so much to ask you, and I doubt I'm going to be able to get through all of it, and maybe we'll have to continue at some other time. But where I, I wanted to start in a place that I think where most people would recognize and know, know you the most by your, your signature roar. Okay. This is all over the internet here. And for those that don't know, Sarah starts her races often. I don't know if it's all the time, but with a signature lioness roar. And I wanted to talk to you about when did that start and how did it start? Well, I was, I'm the type of athlete that trains really, really well. So I would be the fastest at training, like beating top World Cup skiers and then I get to a race situation and I would think so much about the race and put so much expectation in things. I mean, this is I guess things you learn as you develop as an athlete. I would just kind of choke almost. So I had a ski position that was like, come on, Sarah, let out a scream before you go. And he kind of pushed me into that. And as we progressed, it became this roar And for me, what it did was it it basically said, I don't care about anything else right now. I don't care what people think of me. This is my performance. And it it just let out all that anxiety for for the performance so that I could do my job, which was ski fast. And then actually it's developed so much for me because I do it every race. 
at some point, some of the U.S. ski team coaches said I was wasting too much energy and I shouldn't do it. <laughs> but I, we came to realize that it actually did help me. So they said, okay, you should do it. And now when I do it, if somebody asks me to do it just for fun or something, it actually produces adrenaline. Mm. And I feel like that readiness to compete. You know, I, I never knew that in, as far as how that gets started. And so tell me a little about the ability to train hard. And it, it sounds like the difference between your performance from training to the actual race was all in your head. Yeah. What did you see as those barriers? Did you were you ever able to identify like what was happening that was causing your performance to change? Well, in ski racing, it's a lot of training. You're going lap after lap off on the same course, so the race is actually quite different from training, unless you set up a race simulation training. So you're doing the same course so you can continually work on a turn, say, to get faster. But when you get into a race situation, you only have one shot on that course. So you inspect down it. And normally in training, you're inspecting pretty quick. You just like look through it and go down. And in a race situation, what's typical of people is they'll take a lot of time to look at a course. So you're like thinking, oh, God, I'm going to do And I don't think I was aware enough to actually consider, okay, you know, what can I do to go faster? I was just like, oh, that turn looks hard or that, that it looks so much harder. So I came, I came to have this kind of ritual or routine that I would do and I wouldn't inspect fast. I would inspect at a pretty steady pace and I'd slip through, feel the snow. If there was something that a blind turn or something, maybe I'd hike back up just to have the right direction and know where I was going over the, over the terrain. But I would make it I mean, these are things you have to learn on your own because everyone's different. And I, no friends on race day. We always say no friends on powder day. Well, I say no friends on race day because I would, I would find myself waiting for my friend to go up the chairlift and, you know, instead of focusing on the performance or, or what I needed to do to make a solid performance, I'd be more worried about what my friends were doing. And so it was inspect fast, no friends on race day, positive attitude. So you wouldn't look at the course and be like, oh, that looks hard. You'd look at it and be like, oh, I know I can get more speed here. Or, oh, this is a great day for me. You know, or even if it was like cloudy, rainy, you try to make the best out of this experience. Those are my three things, actually. So we're going to circle back to the no friends on race day uh, idea. Because uh, I want I want to dig into that, but as far as so inspect fast, no friends on race day, think positive. What about other routines that you have on race day that you know when you were skiing at sixteen and eighteen? Is a routine pretty much the same from when you were skiing in your thirties? Has it, did it change? Another thing I love to do, which you get. In, on a race day, you spend a lot of time in the lodge because you're like, waiting for your run, basically. Mm -hmm. And I think that's maybe not the best way to go about it. So I started Im implementing more free skiing before I'd race mm -hmm. and getting my body warm. And these, all these routines slowly developed over time. So I think in the beginning, it was more just like go with the crowd, do what everyone else is doing. But then as you gain more experience and you learn more what all the pieces of the sport, you can develop your own routines that work better for you as an individual. Do you think, so skiing is such an individualized sport, 
And it's interesting that you say that you said, you know, you go with the pack and I'd imagine, right. Everyone who you're around is an elite skier on that day. I'm surprised to hear though, that has it maybe changed now where you'll have, you know, the top skiers kind of doing their own thing, coaches around them, having their own routines rather than being in groups uh, of people. Is that? Well, I think the club, especially in the U S is still a little bit, you know, behind maybe and they, mm-hmm. they inspect together as a group. Mm-hmm stopping at every gate. And I think some kids can get through that, but maybe some don't. Um, it At the club level, I think it is still much a pack-type environment, but you do have the specialized kids that the parents are really involved or mm-hmm. you know, they're paying a private coach where mm-hmm. it can be a little bit more individualized, which from maybe from the pack view, it looks bad because they're like, well, why does this person get this individualized attention mm-hmm. and I don't, and there happen to be the ones doing better cause they're, you know, they have their needs and focuses met, but it's not a feasible outlet for the thousands of kids involved in the sport. Hmm. So I think just finding maybe your own, indi- if you can have that opportunity, finding your way individually in the pack and things that work for you. I was always brought up in the club. You know, I had my dad who was very outspoken and was looking out for my needs a lot of the time, but I did have to find my way through that environment. As far as other routines, like you listen to music, how did you psych yourself up and keep yourself focused on race day? Every day was different. Mm-hmm. And I think if you kind of focus too much on one routine that you do every time the same, mm-hmm. maybe it gets, it doesn't get that psych that you need. Mm-hmm. Some days I just sit by myself at the start and like envision myself in a, this was after I started the roar, like in a cage. And I was like, I just got to get out of this cage and like get mentally psyched up like that. But I couldn't do that every time because it didn't work, but sometimes it would work. So, you know, I think you have to take the day see how it feels you know you have certain like those four things I knew worked for me but when as it as you get closer to the start and you're in the arena with all the other athletes that's where it can get really the psyche can get really get in the way or it get help you down so you have to find your way through and basically you when you get into you're in this you're in the start arena with all the top skiers and so you're like oh and their cameras are in your face you have to be mentally tough to not care what anyone thinks. So if you're doing silly exercises or mm-hmm. hop turns or, you know, whatever you're doing that you, you don't care what they're, they're going to, mm-hmm. how they're going to analyze what you're doing and making sure you're doing what you need to do to prepare. Cause it's yeah. a one shot thing. You know, you've chipped the wand early and your, your race is done. Yeah. I don't know if you were a, so we're, we're speaking in, in May of, um, 2020 and I just got done watching the series, the last dance about Michael Jordan and the Chicago bulls. I don't know if you've been able to watch that or not. Uh, it's, it's truly outstanding. And one thing that I was so impressed with MJ was he would use any little motivation, any little incident or any little, you know, incentive to motivate him so if someone looked at him the wrong way or took a shot and said something he would then say like oh no 
Like you're going to see what's coming your way in the ski world. Was there anything like that where, you know, you would find a motivator to focus on the day of or on that run? Yeah, I'm, I don't like conflict uh-huh. with other people, uh-huh. so I didn't look for that. But I could, you could see it. We had two stars when I was uh, racing, Yanitsa Kosalic and Anya Persson. Uh-huh. And the first World Cup Yanitsa came to that I saw, we were in inspection, and she skied right over Anya Persson's skis. Uh-huh. I thought that was, I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And they, so they started that rival and. Uh, it's fun to watch. And I know Peekaboo Street would do stuff like that, too. She'd get, like, feed off uh-huh. and, and play mind games with people. I wasn't like that. I was uh-huh. I was more like, ooh, this song. It was like, I can feel it coming mm. in the... That's when I got my first World Cup podium. I was like, ooh, this is my day. Or I'd go free ski really hard, some moguls under the, under the chair, and, like, just, like, bomb it down as fast as I could. And stuff mm. like that, that would, that would feed me more than rivalries with other competitors or big crowds i love that one more question on on kind of this race day prep and um, routine when you are at the gate the starting gate and a minute before you're ready to go you what's your self-talk what are you saying to yourself i mean it's always different obviously Mm. i had a coach that would he was the coach for the youths and he gave me some cool tips he was like just go no mind Mm. just trust yourself you know you want to in skiing you have to visualize a lot and know where you're going but then once you get to that spot right before the gate it's best to just trust and trust in your ability and I I always did the thing like be in the present moment have a good start don't think about down the course just have a great start so that was the easy thing to focus on to stay present because you're there have a good start, come out, skate hard, get get going as quick as you can. Um, other times you're just like thinking maybe about a little technical thing that you're mm-hmm. that you're working on, like over the outside ski, you know, mm-hmm. just get that feeling over the outside ski, over the outside ski, something like that. Something simple because the more complex, if you any worry or doubt comes in about mm-hmm. oh a turn down below, mm-hmm. it's I usually I would I would prepare the whole race for mm-hmm. that one turn. Mm-hmm. Obviously, your t- my time would would reflect that. Right. So right. for me, just about being no mind or very simple technical. Yeah. Cue. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. All right, let's uh let's transition just a little, and I want to just touch on. The Olympics. You've skied now in five Olympics, and one of, I think, one of three women who have skied for more than one country. Really? Probably. Yeah, probably very few who have children in a ski racing world as well. And I want to know at what point in your life did you go from dreaming? about skiing in the Olympics to actually realizing that it was something attainable. Yeah. When I was little, like five, six, seven, eight, nine, I wanted to be a gymnast, mm-hmm. Olympic gymnast. And where I grew up, and I just didn't have the training for that. And, you know, skiing kind of called me in. My dad was a, my dad has a ski shop. So the Olympic dream didn't really change, but the sport did which was cool. And then 
I don't know. I, I started out really bad. We started out with five groups, and I was in group five, which was the worst group. They they ranked us by ability. And uh, What age Eric, was this? My, this was at 11. Mm-hmm. I started really late, actually, for skiing. But I had been skiing all my life, but mm-hmm. I wasn't. I hadn't been a racer till later. And uh, my coach's daughter was one year older than me, and she was like the star. And we were we became really close friends. But she, I was always chasing her down, always, always chasing her down. And I was never, I'd never beat her. Eric would hand time us, and I was always behind her. Which I think maybe sometimes I was in front of her, but he stopped the timer later. <laughs> but I think that actually helped me more maybe than it helped her, because I was always wanted to get her, wanted to get her, wanted to get faster. And then as I reached like J3, which was 13, 14, my results just started going. I was winning all the races and then I kind of never looked back and I just kept on the path. I think the Olympics was always there and, but I never, I don't know if I was like, so like, oh, I got to go to the Olympics. I got to go. I was just going with the team, US ski team, which was amazing. So much fun. We were out on the road and racing and I'd have bad races, good races, you know, I, but I was always fast since 13 and on. I was fast. So it was kind of just like the natural path. Mm-hmm. And then I was at the Olympics. I was 18 turning 19. It was just surreal. I was, one of my teammates mentioned he, he wished he could have had more of my attitude, which is just so happy to be at the Olympics <laughs> versus putting so much pressure to perform and try and win a medal. So I think my first Olympics was more just like, oh my gosh, I made it. I'm here. It's amazing. I was still pretty immature. I think I'm a, a late bloomer in a lot of ways, but uh, I was so excited just to be competing. And I think when I look back and see like Lindsay and Michaela and their goals and dreams, mm-hmm. they had bigger aspirations. Lindsay was like, I want to win this many races. Mm-hmm. I want to win this many globes. And mm-hmm. I don't think I was that aware of mm-hmm. those pinnacles. Mm-hmm. I was just like, I want to go to the Olympics. And that's what I did. I went to the Olympics. Mm. For me, I, I made it to, to what I had set out for myself. Oh, so much, so much there to unpack. When you were 13 and 14, you mentioned that something something changed in, in your athletic performance. And, you know, I, we could imagine it's, lot, you know, lots of things. It, maybe it's biological, like your body changed. Maybe something emotional changed. Or maybe your coaching changed. Do you have any idea of what it was that happened then i think it was just the repetition of the practice and the the people i had around me i had martina and eric Mm -hmm. and i i was welcome as like a sister almost Mm -hmm. they would take me with them and Mm -hmm. martina was an only child so i think it was welcome for eric i think eric liked me from the beginning and uh we became this kind of unit and so i got to train and travel with the best from a very from I mean I was late because most people had started ski racing at whatever six and I was 11 I stepped into the right environment and that propelled me to start winning pretty quickly so would you and just for everyone and and we're going to dive into this a little deeper later but when Sarah mentions Eric she's talking about uh, Eric Seiler who is actually the first and maybe the only, but I, I could be someone else now, uh, ski race coach in the Hall of Fame. Uh, so he's, he's a legend uh, when it comes he's to... Lindsay Lindsay Vaughn's coach. Yeah. Coached more than 50% of the uh, female Olympians in my time. Yeah. Like all of us had had his coaching at some point. Julia, Racy Siegler, Tasha Nelson. 
Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna circle back to that in a second. Would you consider yourself at age 13, 14, kind of as you were changing, as your abilities were maturing and changing, would you consider yourself like your, your greatest talents? Were they more of just like a natural ability to ski fast? Or would you say that you mentally were able to kind of conquer the course or was it more tactical? Like you were able to like technical in a way, like, like people describe Michaela Schifrin as a technical skier. What would you describe yourself in your, in the younger years as like this type, like what made you at the top? What made you be able to win these races? It goes to my upbringing. My dad raised me and I had a brother and he was all about hard work. You know, we, he, we never got to sleep past seven or eight in the morning. He always had projects for us. I always had to do the dishes. You know, he was just a little bit hard on us, but loving at the same time. And uh, I think that started me out with this will to, like, work hard. And it kind of became a natural way for me to just do as many runs as I could. And I had a lot of enthusiasm for life. And as far as like this, I I was never considered a technical or a tactical mm. skier. Mm-hmm. I would always blow the tactical part because mm-hmm. I was just like head mm-hmm. down, go as fast as I can. You know, the, I those are the things like really smart skiers like Bodhi and mm-hmm. they know when to take it down, when to speed, speed it up. Right. So I think it was more of just a like this commitment to what I was doing. If anything. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it sounds like a lot of that those seeds were planted. Uh, at a young age and sprouted throughout your your adolescence and teen years. Let's circle back to now your mentors and coaches. And I know Eric Seiler played a really important role early on um, in your ski career. Are there any, if you can name some, put your finger on some of the key takeaways, like really important themes that Eric was able to impart on you throughout your career that would come back over and over again? Well, one of the things he always told us was you have to coach yourself. Mm. So if, if what a coach is saying doesn't seem right, make sure that you have the ability. And I think that's true in any kind of situation through life. Like spiritual leaders say the same thing. If it resonates with you, then put it into your practice. Otherwise, you know, you can choose your own way. And that, that was helpful, especially as, you know, a, a, a slow budding woman. And he taught us about doing, you know, a lot of repetition and having, having a rivalry was always a good thing. Having somebody to push you, watching the best, skiing behind the best, learning from the best, just simple stuff. And then he always talked about not changing your technique, you know, doing what was natural for you, making a natural skier. And I love that. that was, um, I'm just taking notes here. <laughs> those, are, those, are, those are really great. Um, do you, did you used to, he, you know, he has a pretty distinctive accent and voice. Did you used to hear, do you hear his voice when you would ski, when you would, you know, the before race, during it? Yeah. I will ski for his praise. Uh-huh. I still do it. I'm like, uh-huh. watch me, Eric. He's like, oh, beautiful, Sarah, beautiful. 
But then if you piss him off, it's like, God damn it, Sam, what are you doing? <laughs> and Martino was like, she was scared of him, and I would still, I was the rebellious one. So I would sneak out of the room with the boys at mm-hmm. night. He always tells a story at camp about how I was sleeping out at the in the hall waiting for these British boys to come by. And he was like, get back in your room, Sarah. What are you doing? And Martina was always, you know, the good one and doing the right thing. So we we had that going a little bit. Oh, that's that's funny. Your co-athletes, people on the U.S. ski team that have skied with you, have described you as a fiercely competitive person with crazy energy and motivation that brought out competitiveness in all of them. For example, Lindsey Vaughn said that you were always challenging her to push up and pull up competitions. Racy Stiegler said you used to motivate her and push her uh, to work harder, that um, she knew that if she that you would never, ever want to see her beat you because you're so competitive, but that inspired her to race harder. Is there a driving force behind your competitiveness anything that you could kind of describe we have this talk a lot and i thought about it a lot i'm extremely self-motivated and my surfing friends say the same thing they gave me the nickname wiggly dantes because he's the surfer that's just super crazy competitive passionate and i do the same thing in surfing i'm like out there just catching bombs and falling on crazy crashes and and I think I also inspire my surfing friends to get out there. So um, I don't know where that drive comes from. I don't know if it's genetics because I see my kids too. And Lasse has a, uh, this competitive mm-hmm. urge, you know, when he's out on the hill and he wins a run, he gets so emotional and so excited. So I think it might be almost genetic makeup. I don't yeah. know if everybody has it because I've just always had it. And when we would, that's what I was saying in training, when we would train, I was so competitive and mm-hmm. so fast. I wanted those fast times. But it was interesting because when I'd get into the race, it was almost less important to be the fastest on that day. I mean, obviously, I was still competitive and wanted to win the races. And But on training, I was just like, come on, bring it on. Let's let's make this fun. Let's. And I, I had more, a lot of girls will have the competitive spirit, but they kind of, they think it's not good to show it or uh-huh. they, they won't like talk crap. They'll keep it more internal and get more right. like jealousy feelings or something where I'm like, I had this one girl that was on the team, Jessica Kelly, and she she had brothers and was more uh-huh. like, you know, it's like that boy rivalry, like, right. let's do this. And then it, once it was off the hill, it was like, we were just friends. But when we were out on the hill, it was like, come on. And we'd have running races or any kind of, you know, just anything. I love sports and I love that thrill of competition and trying to do your best and trying to win the thing. So I think, I don't know, maybe it's genetic. Yeah, no, that's. <laughs> or maybe it's, a, it's from the the way I was brought up with boys all around me. Yeah, that it's an dad. interesting thought, you know, because in in the last dance, actually, and it's just like as a reference, I just watched, you know, watched that recently. I mean, Michael Jordan was the exact same way. People would describe him like it didn't matter what it was; he always was competing, whether it was, you know, who could throw a quarter closest to a wall from five feet away, you know, or or a foul shot competition or, or a game. He was competitive, at, at, you know, everywhere. And, and it ended up 
driving people to work harder all around him. And my guess is that athletes at this elite level, at the level that you're working at, this is probably a characteristic that's common among them. Definitely. Yeah. Um, we used to have uh, dessert eating. This is kind of disgusting. <laughs> I, could, I could eat huge Austrian guys and eating food. We went to this all-you-can-eat sushi, and I would just, I was like, oh, we got to the point where he was like, I can do one more plate, and he couldn't. But then I got so sick after, I thought I was going to explode. Yeah. Oh. Or dessert eating competition, stupid stuff like that. I love it. So you mentioned that skiers like Lindsay Vaughn, perhaps Michaela Schifrin, kind of had a clear sense of, you know, I want to win X number of races, you know, these number of points, medals. And, and you said you weren't that, you know, not that wasn't really your thing. But did you had to have or perhaps had goals or a way to manage or organize goals, maybe like wrote something down or would have a list of things or kept it in your mind. Did you have some general system or way that you named goals for yourself? I write a lot. I write everything that comes to me and I've had journals since I was a really young girl and I've looked back at some of my training journals, which were more just like what I ate, what I eat. And um, I remember telling myself, oh, stay away from, bo or I remember I re read this, stay away from the boys are distracting mm. for your goals, stuff like that. But um, Do you I remember how old you were for that? Me. When you wrote that? Stay away from boys are like distracting. 14, 13, 14, 15. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of Eric's things too. Don't have a boyfriend. They're distracting. But I love, like, I was always into the boys. Uh -huh. uh, when we were on the C team, our coach, George Kapal, he would have us do these goal sheets, I remember. And I saw Lindsay's, and it was like, this year I want to get podiums in the World Cup. This year I want to win World Cup. This year I'm going to win the overall. This, And I just, I don't know if it's because her dad was this, a very competitive skier, so she knew more about the process and what the things you could win were. Right. And maybe I was a little bit more naive to that. And obviously, we all know we can win Olympic medals, but I don't think I ever wrote win Olympic medal. Maybe I did later, but originally it was always make it to the Olympics. Hmm. I don't know. I don't remember specifically if I had win the World Junior Championships mm -hmm. or stuff like that. But I did. I was. I was second. I was second a lot at these big events. I was second in Topolino. I won Whistler Cup. I mean, I did eventually win a World Cup. But I was one of those races that was consistently in the top 10, mm -hmm. which for an American wasn't really, you know, it's, it's hard for us as yeah. Americans to be doing that. And I don't know if it was because I also had this like conservative side to me that was like, I didn't want to be that much in the spotlight or I don't know what was holding. So I, to win the World Cup, I read this book that my doctor in Germany gave me because I, I was having back problems, so I was seeing this specialist. And I read this book about winning, and I went on a vacation by myself. And I was like, I studied the video side by side of Marlise and myself, and I was like, I can win. I can beat her. And I looked at it, and I just kind of reset and went back and won the next race, which was crazy. But that I just put it to myself, and I did it. But I think a lot of these other athletes like Michaela, they're doing that all the time. And she has help 
with with her mom who's like you can win this you and she won't let her get away with these little mistakes whereas if you're in the team environment the coach is looking out for the whole group of girls so you're not like a specific um, focus for them so you have to be finding those little things for yourself and I mean I finally did it but I think when you have parents like Lindsay and Michaela mm-hmm. have that are really active and mm-hmm. helping them get through those little things I think it's definitely very helpful what was the name of the book it was called the, winning winning do you recall the author at all was it was it in no, German it was like, no it was no. in English okay. he had it on his bookshelf and okay. I was like I think I need to read that and then I took it, read it, did the video thing, and then went. And I met these guys, and they're like, take this maca root. And so I started taking maca root, and I was like, okay. Uh-huh. And then I went out and won the race. Nice. Nice. That's great. So we, we I, I'm going to throw you a little a little uh, curveball here. We have a guest who wants to join briefly. Awesome. And ask a couple of her own questions. Let me introduce to you. Ruby Rosh, my daughter what? who is 11, turning Baby. 12. When's Let's your birthday, here, Ruby? Me... All right, can you see Ruby? She's had she she has kind a, of a, a costume on Where's for she? you. Ooh. Is that your Mexican uh, uh, rancher? I don't know what she's doing. It's for my art class. Oh, it's for her art class. Okay. She's in school. <laughs> When's your birthday, Ruby? July 12th. July 12th. Last day turned 12 in January. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Ruby has, she has a couple questions that she wants to ask you. All right, Ruby. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself as a first year U14? Hmm. (laughs) These questions are always so hard, no? I honestly think I wouldn't change much. I would just tell myself to believe, believe in where you are, believe in what you're at and uh, just go through, go through the motions that you need to do to, to get to your, to your adult life. I don't know if when you're 14, you don't realize that you are actually going to become an adult at some point. So it's really important that you enjoy being a child, enjoy being a kid and have fun with your friends and, you know, if you wanna if you wanna be great at something, just to keep your mind focused on it and not lose sight of where you wanna go. But also at the same time to have fun and enjoy the process. Do you have another one? Uh yeah. So Let's my see. second one is how do you keep friendships with your teammates when they're like also your competitors? It's hard. It's that's a hard question. Um I try to keep the competition stuff on the hill. You know, and I'm open about being competitive. So I'm like, on the hill, I'm like, I want to kick your butt today. Let's do this. But then when it's like out, when we're just goofing around, we're just having fun, we kind of forget about being competitors. You know, even maybe when you're dry land training, you're like, okay, I'm going to do one more rep than you. Or I'm going to run faster than you and, and show yourself that way physically. But as far as like being in a team environment, having dinner, having fun, it's really easy to, to be friends because being friends is way more fun than being rivals, I think. So I would try to keep close close with my teammates and make it work in any way so that we could, because all personalities are different and you get put into a situation on a team that maybe you're not as compatible, but I, I would always try and make the group work as a friend, friendship scenario because that, that made beating on the road so much more fun. 
All right. Ruby. <laughs> Ruby's um she's been she's been working hard in dry land so far with the hey. season cut short in February. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh and she made the Rocky Central team this year. So she's excited. That's she needs awesome. Ruby. She needs some training. <laughs> yes. We are going to get some training and I have the feeling. All right. Anything else? All right. Cool. Let's circle back. Awesome. That was good. She she's been talking about this for the last couple of days when she found out that we were going to be speaking. So I want I want to stay on the topic of youth skiing for a little, and ask you like what what should the path? Well, not what should, but what can the path look like for a young ski racer who wants to try and compete at the highest levels? But here's the caveat. So they don't live in Vail. They don't live in Buck Hill, you know, in, in Minnesota. All right. They live mm -hmm. in rural, uh, you know, they live in, in a state that uh, definitely they could ski. They could join a race team. But, you know, when do, you know, what is it, what does the path look like if they, if they really want to come, if they're committed and they want to get to these highest levels? What are some of the key things? Well, to get, I think, to the highest level in anything, you ha there are some sacrifices. Mm -hmm. You have to completely focus yourself on that thing you want to be the best at. You know, and we all know the, the famous theory of 10,000 hours, mm -hmm. but I think that is true. You have to be committed, like writing in your journal, not to talk to the boys because it's distracting you from what, what's really what you want, where you're headed. And, and having that point set and then... There are many things you can do that can get you there. There's, the internet is so valuable now. You can watch every World Cup racer. You can pick out a, a guys to watch and just study them. And I think it'd be the same in music or anything else. And just following that path and visualizing. I mean, you can be training in your mind. They say that's almost as viable mm. as actually doing the thing. So if you're watching yourself, every time I meditate, I do a run, a ski run. And then I do the ski run also. I do it in reverse, backwards, so you can kind of see the line. Because a, yeah. a friend of mine, a motorcycle racer friend of mine told me that trick. So you run the course backwards, and that, that, feel, that gives you the feeling for the shape of the turn and the line, things like that. And then there's obviously the physical training that you can be doing and, and making sure that you're dedicating yourself every day to do I would make up specific exercises so I'd lay on my ball sideways and like work on getting over the outside ski like working that side core or lifting your legs because skiing is all about having the you know having the ability to bring your legs up to you so hanging from a bar and working those muscles and just developing things that work for a skier or work for what you're doing and I know there's this like stigmatism that you have to be at the best club with the best, but actually, you know, we live in Vail and I think Vail is mm -hmm. the program so big that if you, you, it's so easy just to get swept under the, the rug, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. maybe a few elite skiers get some special attention, but it, maybe it's better to even be at a different club where you can, you know, work and you're not having to deal with all these other elite things going on. So I don't think that is definitely the means all ends all or whatever, however yeah. that saying goes. Yeah. yeah, that makes. But you definitely have to be training a lot and focusing every day on that goal. That makes a lot of sense. When did you 
were, were you always doing physical and mental training? So not not during ski season, right? But in the in the off season, at what like at what age did did you recognize that you need to get your body in shape? You need to get your mind in shape as well. Yeah, the mentals came later for me. I didn't realize how important it was. I think that was also just developing. It wasn't as important. It wasn't as well known mm-hmm. as it is now. Right. Physically, I I wouldn't let myself go one day without. At first, it was rollerblading because rollerblading is very ski specific. So mm-hmm. I would take my rollerblades and go out and rollerblade. I'd set up courses with cones, or I'd rollerblade to the next town. Anything to mm-hmm. get that balance. Any kind of skating thing. Um, but I, I also do go on my trampoline and you can jump side to side like a ski motion and I do intervals that way, but I wouldn't let myself go one day without physical, you know, if I did some, if I was lazy one day, I would just feel so guilty. I was like, Oh, you, you gotta go out. You gotta get train harder. You gotta do more. I think we're also kind of progressing away from that too. And just like making sure our training is very focused and, and smart training, but I was into being the strongest and I found when I got a trainer and actually did some heavier lifting and had somebody there to push me and motivate me, I had my better seasons. Mm. Even though I was very Mm self-motivated, having that extra kind of guidance did help to get stronger because I wouldn't, I I don't like the weight room. I'm one of those people that's like no weight room, but I do think skiing because of the forces you, you endure through the course of the, through the length of the course that it is important to have, some extra power there yeah and and the longevity of your career i would presume you probably you know your attention to physical and mental health has prolonged do you feel like that's been one of the main things and being able to prolong your career i guess that's what i'm trying to say yeah i've had i've had those miraculous Mm -hmm. meetups with people where you're like what how did that happen where i've learned specific things i had you know, I had a very early intro into yoga mm-hmm. and I love yoga because it, you learn your body so well and you learn things that can help you get yourself back in alignment. And it's a lengthening, but also a strengthening that's very practical. And I think that does add a lot of longevity to any athlete's career. I also, this Tai Chi teacher followed me on, followed me on Facebook. It's like, I have to teach you this stuff. And I was like, <laughs> what is this guy doing? And so finally, I just kind of gave in, and I was like, "Yeah, okay." And he drove out to Beaver Creek, where I was staying, to teach me some techniques. And then I all of a sudden became amazed with Tai Chi. It made me feel so good and so limber in my mid area, which is so important for skiing. And but I I do Tai Chi religiously now. This one routine thing that at one movement I do almost every day for 20 minutes, and it's helped. I think that's one of the reasons why I can keep doing what I'm doing. And then mentally, I've had these also techniques come in just just because I'm out there searching for things that that really have helped me, you know. And I and now I'm into the Wim Hof thing, and I just uh-huh. did this this webinar about soma breath, which is like a kind of a combination of Wim Hof and visualizing and these powerful beats, and it just blew my mind. But there's all these little things out there that if you're looking, that you know that will find you. And I've been fortunate enough to to run into some of those things. What's your typical morning routine look like? Before skiing or just like here in Mexico? Well, I, <laughs> I, w- I would say take, um, I can tell you both. yeah, yeah. I want to know. Yeah. 
Well, I was going to say you probably have carried over a lot of the same disciplines even during skiing to now, like in in many things, just because of the mental you know, health and, and the physical health that, that you maintain. So, so yeah, I mean, both, what, what's a typical morning routine look like now? And what did one look like, you know, in the prime of your, uh, ski racing? I, I tend to do the same things now that I did back then when I'm skiing. So I wake up, if we have to be leaving at five, I wake up at four and I do, I warm up for an hour. So I'll do this whole core yoga Tai Chi sequence that makes my body get in alignment and that has obviously some visualizing going on along with it and I feel like the earlier I get up the more my body warms up the more success I'm going to have out on the hill because skiing is such a demanding physical sport and that just this is just a it's a simple routine that I do and it slowly wakes me up and I do that religiously I really find that helps as far as like carrying I don't do that same thing when I'm here in Mexico I do wake up if I'm motivated in the morning sometimes I can't get out of bed in this heat but I'll go up on my roof we have a beautiful roof mm-hmm. here that outlooks over the trees and I'll do 20 minutes of tai chi and then I'll do a meditation and then I have our family we do Wim Hof meditations in the afternoon my husband I just turned him on to it and he just loves it mm. it just brings you to Lasse he doesn't really get the the effects as much but mm-hmm. he, I think he's slowly learning to have you know more of a conscious Mm-hmm. breathing and all that but i mean those are the things i like to focus on and then it, it, whatever it, happens during the day is there as far as like the uh the win wim hof techniques did, did, is there a place that you could recommend that someone search it or just you know search online for it or is there a particular video or book or anything that you i used? learned about wim hof from my mexican teammate rodolfo he he posted something about him i hadn't heard of him before and i know he's all over the web now yeah. um there is a great video on youtube it's with mm-hmm. two minute breath holds i mean mm-hmm. i think there's ones with one and a half it's just the basic he leads you through the breathing i taught myself through the through youtube mm-hmm. and, and yeah you just look up wim hof breathing technique on youtube and you can find find how to do it and then i would also recommend looking into this soma breath because it's fascinating do you know how to spell that s-o-m-a s-o-m-a soma soma breath and this i just learned about this yesterday so i'm I'm super excited to delve into it a little bit more but yeah it's easy to teach yourself those things not with the internet so you um you had your first child lasse in 2008 who made a guest appearance about 20 minutes ago. I saw him on the video here. And your second child, Racy, in 2013. But after your first child in 2008, you continued to race for the U.S. ski team. And that that was a big deal. And you, you were the only person on the U.S. ski team at the time who had a child. And you may be the only person ever who has had a child while they're on the U.S. ski team. I'm not sure. Uh, but... What was that decision like that you made with your husband at the time to continue to be a ski racer for the sacrifices that you're going to have to make and the life that you're going to have to live? Um, and the whole, right, that you do that as a family. What was there anything in that decision that you were afraid of? This kind of goes back to that whole goal setting thing. For some reason, I had this weird urge. I was like, I want to race as a mom. Hmm. I told my teammates that. I didn't have a boyfriend or any or a husband mm-hmm. or anything. 
like, I want to be a mom and race. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you're crazy. I don't, I, I want to be done with skiing when I'm a mom. Mm. And then granted, I wasn't married when I mm-hmm. became pregnant, but I knew that this was the man that I wanted mm-hmm. to have my children with. And I was at an Eric Seiler ski camp in June when I found out I was, out I was pregnant. So I called him and I was like, oh, I'm pregnant. Mm-hmm. And, he, and we were just like, what? What? That, how did that happen? Because we thought we were practicing mm-hmm. uh, not having a child. <laughs> um, but for me, it was easy because, like I said, I had that inkling that mm-hmm. I wanted to do it. And I waited the 40 days or whatever that I was recommended before I started real physical activity. Mm-hmm. And then I, I didn't have, you know, I was like, well, is the team going to accept me back? I, I told, I called the team right away when I found out I was pregnant. I'm like, I'm pregnant. And they were like, okay, well, have a good life or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then when I told them I wanted to continue racing, they were like, well, let's see how that goes. And the first year back, I scored points in my first World Cup back, but then I kind of dipped down mm-hmm. and, and I wasn't fast for a while. I don't know the stresses of it or whatever, but um, my husband was willing to travel and he took care of Wasse while I was training and everything worked out. The team was super willing. We had a very open team and the coaching staff was willing to take on that load, which was amazing. And by the end of the season, I got my speed back. I, I, I won Noram. I kind of got bumped off the World Cup because I was flat for a while. Then I started winning Norams again. I was about on my way to win U.S. Nationals, but crashed in the second run. So I was getting, I was definitely had my speed back by the end, but I hadn't made the criteria for my age because mm-hmm. at my age, you had to be doing stuff on World Cup, and I had only gotten that one World Cup. So the next season, I was still named onto the team, but I had to fund my own way. Mm-hmm. So that for me was a little bit disappointing because I had proven my speed again mm-hmm. and um, I had a spot on the World Cup still from those points that I but luckily the FIS was giving the US ski team money for my rankings so I had to fight with the US ski team to get this travel money that was allotted for my position mm-hmm. and that became a big deal, but I ended up making the money I needed to travel and, mm-hmm. and fund that season. And then that, then I got, you know, I was got a fifth place on a world cup that year and was having consistent results. So I decided to retire on my tone terms in 2012. I was still having pretty decent results. Um, that was, um, and my last race was Michaela's first podium, mm-hmm. but what I was, I wasn't enjoying, um, one, losing my status to Michaela. I didn't like being, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't want somebody taking my role as the top technical skier. And then also the coach was, he was very Austrian and kind of square and he only saw Michaela mm-hmm. and he didn't see the effort that I thought I was giving as a mother. And so I decided it was time to, uh, call it quits for with the ski team and I was still had this idea of the Mexican team that came about in 2009 because Hubertus von Hohenlohe who's my teammate he's 60 so at the last uh, Olympics was it the Olympics or world championships when it was the world championships our collective the two of us combined were, we were 100 years old um, <laughs> he was 60 and I was 40 so we're, wow. <laughs> it was pretty funny with but he was like what He's friends with my my husband's family. He's like, why don't you why don't you switch the Mexican team? Like, we can get your passport easy, but it wasn't easy. It took us six mm-hmm. years or whatever to get mm-hmm. the passport. 
So I all of a sudden, I was always harnessing this dream to keep going, keep going. But the thing about being on the Mexican team is there's no real pressure to have results. So I could train as much as I want and do whatever I wanted, basically, and still have my position on the Olympic team. And, you know, I'm, I'm fast. I'm definitely still fast, but I'm not as fast as I was. I'm not, I just don't put in the hours. I mean, I think almost, I think maybe not now, but back a couple of years ago, I, I could have been just as fast. I just wasn't training as much and I didn't have the team support that the U.S. ski team has. Gosh, there's so much there. I'm going to just dissect that a little. So just going mm-hmm. back to the beginning mm-hmm. of what you just were talking about, from pre-motherhood to post-motherhood, it took you a little while to kind of get back to your fighting form. What did you ha- did things change for you significantly in the way you had to train in your mindset? You know, or were you just doing the same thing and just having to spend more time doing it? Like, was there anything specific of how you changed post lasse? Well, the breastfeeding was a little uh-huh. awkward. I, I had a breast pump that I would bring on the hill. And the co- one of my coaches one day was like, oh, Sarah, you got your own oxygen tank? It has this little- <laughs> and then he got closer. He's like, no, no, it's your breastfeeding. And then Federico blew out his knee so he couldn't come on one of the trips with me. Mm. So I kind of had to quit breastfeeding cold turkey. And I wow. had these enormous uh-huh. swollen breasts that were like leaking out. Uh-huh. And my coaches were just like, oh, my God, Sarah, what is wow. wrong with you? <laughs> Um, wow. it, it was definitely became more of a balance of, you know, attending to my family and making sure that Lasse felt the love of his mother and focusing on my own needs and selfishly doing my sport. So it, it became a little bit more of a balance, although I still was selfish in a lot of ways, thankful to my husband that he mm-hmm. was able to take the load of being mother and father mm-hmm. at the same time. But wow. we, we traveled together, so he was there for all the races and you know it was also a very growing and enlightening period for him as a father sure sure we'll touch on that um but in 2011 you skied your your final world cup race in Linz, austria as a u.s athlete and Mm -hmm. you did this right Although you could look this up on YouTube, it was fabulous, wearing a dress rather than a traditional ski race suit. And about halfway down the course, you stop and someone comes out. Is that your husband at the time or coach? That's my coach. Okay. And hands you your son, Lasse, who was about three or four at the time. And you ski the remainder of the run holding your son in your arms. What meaning did this last run have for you at that time? Yeah, because no one knew you were going to come back and you didn't even know necessarily that you were still going to ski in the Olympics later, even after that. But this was your last race. What meaning or what was going through your mind on that last run? It was exciting. It was really emotional. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize what a turning point that was. And just like now that whole U.S. ski team life, how that was just almost like seems like a different lifetime ago. But for me, it was the whole thing came together. You know, before I was married and with the children, I was like, the, my teammates were like, you got to do your last run naked. You got to do your last <laughs> run naked. And I was like, 
And I was like, well, I could maybe do a bikini or something. And, and luckily, um, Julia had these swimsuit bottoms and Racy loaned me the dress. Hmm. So it all kind of pieced together. And then last minute, we're in the lodge waiting for the race to start. They're like, why don't you ski down with Lasse? That'd be so fun. So we like planned this all like on the go. And it ended up being one of the most memorable runs, obviously, in my career, just because I was carrying Lasse and just saying goodbye to the whole sport in a way. But I wasn't sad to let it go. I was excited for what was ahead. And I was happy with what I had accomplished as a skier. So it was a great, great way to, to move forward. And I think it was a fun way and people enjoyed, enjoyed watching. And I felt bad for Wendy Holdener was right behind me mm. on the start. So mm. she had to kind of wait for the whole process. She had a horrible race, but she's gone on to become one of the world cup's top stars. Oh, good. Yeah. I was wondering that same thing when I was watching the video, but it's almost, that was the, that was kind of the, passing of the baton i think and i think it's symbolic for all of women's u.s ski racing i mean this wasn't just a symbol for yourself i think this was a symbol of a reigning in of a new era in a sense of of u.s women's ski racing uh for sure and you take some time off and you get a little restless no, I was I was just waiting for that passport. Uh-huh. I was ready to go. I was like the fist had already accepted me for Sochi Olympics cuz I could have had 7 by now or 6. Yeah. But I got the passport 1 month after Sochi. So that was a bummer. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that you you um the New York Times you're quoted saying this is when you decided that you wanted to pursue uh, racing for the uh, Team Mexico uh, in the Olympics. The New York Times said, you said, I'm doing this for the passion of the sport and to inspire others. I know I'm not going to win, but I want to prove that people my age and girls in general can push the limit. It's about longevity. The guys do it. <laughs> <laughs> And then I want to just read one more quote, uh, because I think this transition that happens in your life with motherhood, Mexican citizenship and racing for another country, your husband actually says it's also the beginning of her career as a mentor of a new nation. I think there is a lot she can do and a lot of people she can inspire the young and up-and-coming racers. So you go from, you know, almost two decades of racing for the United States, for yourself, inspiring the next group of athletes coming up behind you who are now, now there. Some of them are retiring now. Um, and yet you're here you are still, right? You're, you, you still go on, you're, you're racing for Mexico. You're inspiring a, a country, the youth of, of a country, pursue some of their dreams that they have never, never thought that they would have the opportunity to do. So what has that done for your life these last couple of years? Is it, would you consider the racing you've done in Mexico and the mentorship and the coaching that you've done the 
new purpose in your life? Yeah, I think what I love more than competing is being with the younger athletes and, you know, walking them through their hard spots. And I'm still, I'm still helping Missy Siegler a lot. She calls me all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't assume that role or I don't, like, think I'm the all-knowing or anything like that. I just happen to get these people that I feel like I can help. And what I've loved the most about becoming this athlete men, race player coach is what one of my coaches calls mm-hmm. it, um, is being able to interact as a coach and as an athlete. So you have just such a different perspective. So here I am, I have a group of athletes that I'm working with and I'm, most coaches don't even know how to carve a turn anymore. So and I'm racing the course, running the course with them. So we can have specific conversations about a turn, the snow type, tuning the skis you know the feeling of the edges you know I have such a different perspective than most coaches can actually mm-hmm. have and I think that's made some coaches that don't see the the potential of it jealous or uncomfortable and that's been a little bit of a conflicting issue in certain areas but I have certain coaches that really promote it with like Eric and my coach in Vail Crawford so I've had people that have had outlets for me to to make this possible and then I do my own camp in in Austria where I can you know I had I had an assistant coach and he's like you can't coach and race at the same time I'm like watch me yes I can Mm -hmm. and it does maybe detract from my own training but at that point at this point it's not Mm -hmm. that's not my purpose anymore to be the best in the world or be my purpose is more to pass it along and keep going with it as long as I can and for me, the best part of ski racing is going down the course. Mm-hmm. You know, the actual skiing part is the most fun. Skiing down the course is amazing. It's exhilarating. Why would you want to give that up? So I have that along with all. And you know, I'm perpetually 19. Actually, mm-hmm. I've, I've, I think being here in Mexico has helped me grow up a little bit. But mm-hmm. I'm perpetually 19. The girls I coach with are perpetually 19 because mm-hmm. the after 19 they go to college or they move on. And I'm, I always seem to be with that PG level because I'm an, a player coach, so I'm racing along that kind of age limit. So my athletes are normally around that age, so I, I have this not perpetual 19-year-old mentality, which has been really fun. Is there anything that you have learned from coaching that you apply to your own skiing? It's funny because I think about this as, as a lot of, a lot as well. I learn every day I'm on the snow. I I learn I get to meet new people who know know different things and I'm constantly like I know I know life is a game of learning and and teaching. So I know everybody I'm teaching, I can also learn from. And I know that there's teachers everywhere. So every day I'm learning something. So I feel like every year I continue with the sport, I more I become a master of of the whole realm of things. And, and, uh, that's been amazing for me because most kids are giving the sport up when they go to college or after college. And for me, it's been a way to like really get into the sport and learn and learn and be more in tune with what's going on and the technique and the mental challenges and all those kinds of things. What mistakes do you see, if any, that young skiers, often make and this doesn't have to be technical i just mean maybe at a high level like are 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 young are the 
athletes that you train, like, do you see common mistakes that they're making, maybe thinking about something or uh, how they, their perceptions of anything? What should young skiers be doing more of or less of? There's all different kinds of skiers. You have the kids that'll just go as fast as they can, but never make it to the bottom. You know, and that frustrates me so bad. I'm like, you hike back up there and you make those gates. Eric always was a proponent of getting to the bottom, mm-hmm. getting the time. You know, when you, you blow out of the course, it's over. So, you know, I always try and push the kids that, that are doing that to, to really try and finish the course, make it through the course. And then it's like playing the piano. You know, maybe you're going to play it a little slower to make all the keys before you get fast because if you get fast you make start making mistakes you know get get through and then you can start pushing 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 or push three gates and then make it sure you get through so that's something i work on a lot with younger kids and then i think there's so many distractions nowadays mm-hmm. some of these kids want to make it i have alessandro who's the young mexican racer mm-hmm. that i coach that's just full of energy full of life has amazing goals he wants to go to the olympics in summer and winter he wants to be a marathon guy and then a ski racer so you know he has these amazing goals but he's so distracted so easily mm-hmm. by things so just trying to keep him on focus mm-hmm. and you know keep him watching the videos and manifesting where he wants mm-hmm. to go mm-hmm. i just want to touch on one more thing on youth skiers you brought this up you touched on it a little about ski schools for skiers for youth skiers who um, are committed, right? They they commit, not their parents, but they commit uh, to wanting to become a high level skier. Is there a right time, age, or range that they should transition to? Let's say a program that is uh, year round or a ski school. You know, maybe places in the East Coast and Vermont or out west. My dad always. Wanted, I was like, I want to go to Burke, or I want to go to... He's like, and he wanted me home. He mm-hmm. wanted to be in charge. He didn't want to lose his kid. Yeah. So for me, it was never really an option. Mm-hmm. Like I look at Lasse, who was like, we're living in Mexico, and he's like, Mom, I just want to ski. Mm-hmm. I just want to ski. So I'm like, well, how can I make this possible? Like, mm-hmm. do I... Do I need to be there helping you get there? Because then we leave Federico behind, so it becomes this complicated push and pull. Is is the ski school going to actually be looking out for my athlete, my daughter, 100%, my son? Or, you know, are they going to get washed under the into the mix? And it's just going to become, that's their education. And I, mm-hmm. I lost them as a daughter, and they lost mm-hmm. them as an athlete. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a really tough question. I know when Michaela went to Burke, her mom went with her. And I don't know how many kids are actually making it out of these schools alone onto the big stage. Maybe having a parent is more important than being in one of these academies. Because you can always say, you know, you, you can always make a year-round program because there's camps and things like that. And you can hook on with other teams around the world. And is the American system the best way? Probably not. Like if you're going to think about doing a school, you might want to think about Austria mm-hmm. or Switzerland where they mm-hmm. actually are known for creating world-class skiers. You know, so it, there's a lot that goes into thinking about those things. I'm also thinking about that as a parent, as a kid yeah. who wants to ski race. And I want to be there as his mentor because I feel like I have the experience. But at the same time, it's hard to be his mom. And I, I tried not to coach him too much mm-hmm. because I didn't want to push him away from it. So I basically, like, ignored him 
mm-hmm. on the hill. He's like, Mom, finally last year, he was like, Mom, coach me. I want to be faster. Yeah. And so that's kind of the feedback I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Where you have these other parents that are so pushy that the kid's like, ah, screw skiing. I don't want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And now Les is just like, I want to ski. I want to ski, Mom. I want to be with my friends. I want to ski. Um, so we're just, you know, we're fi- trying to find the right way for him he's not sure if he wants to be a world cup but he said right. he did want to try and get a college scholarship so that he could race for a college at some point we're gonna go back to to that last part in a second i want to just we'll start wrapping up here and there was an article i read in february 2018 and this was i believe right before you represented mexico uh, in the olympics in south korea and you wrote, you said, all the gurus talk about dying before you can be reborn. He said, this Olympics will be a death for me, but then I will be reborn, a new direction. I haven't committed to anything yet, but junior team Mexico is on the drawing board. So we're now two years after that, after having you, when you said that, looking back at that, where where are you now as far as um, your rebirth? Mm-hmm. I took a, a young Mexican skier to the Youth Olympics this year in Switzerland, mm-hmm. which was a really cool experience. We had to do a – she was her first year FIS racing, which is the international level of competition where you can get rankings to ma- mm-hmm. be able to make it to a race like the Olympics. So we had to hunt down races which mm-hmm. became really complicated because South America had no snow at the beginning of the season. So we had a whole trip planned and had to cancel and replan. And we went to South America and did something crazy, like 14 races in 20 days or something like that, which is a lot. But I raced right with her. I coached her. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some, there were some junior races that I didn't do and she did by herself, but we qualified for the Olympics in that series. And, uh, she qualified mm-hmm. and we got, we got to go to Switzerland, have the best time of our lives at this. The, the great thing about the Olympic games is maybe for a lot of people, it's winning the medals, mm-hmm. but just to be a part of something so global and so mm-hmm. peaceful, mm-hmm. you know, that you have kids from all over the world and you're mm-hmm. become like, I became friend, my best friend at this Olympics became a, a girl from Iran, a coach from Iran. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you hear all these conflicts, U S mm-hmm. and Iran and, mm-hmm. and we became great friends. Like we had, we didn't have that much differences between us. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. We could talk about things. I mean, thankfully she spoke English, mm-hmm. but you know, going to the Olympics is more than just the medals. It's being in a global community and being a part of something so big and that and and Lusanne has the Olympic Museum. Mm-hmm. So we got to go see the history of the Olympics, how it formed. And there was this French guy that was completely committed to developing. He spent all his savings just to, to make the, the modern day Olympics happen. And and I'm so thankful. And I hope we can go back to having, you know, big events like that without... Yeah put people's health in jeopardy just because it is so powerful to be part of the, that global community that's, you know, in search of peace and in the name of sport. It was a really nice way to, to put it. And uh, I've read that your goal is to, and this was right before uh, the Olympics in South Korea, uh, you said your goal was to compete in two more Olympics. The second one, wherever it is, they, we didn't know at the time, 
uh, will likely might be your last. Your son Lasse would be 18 and competing potentially in his first Olympics. You'd like to be the first mother to compete with her son. Is that still true? Yeah, I mean, we still have, we still have six years till that, so uh -huh. we'll see. How, you know, it's all, ski racing is demanding on the body, so uh -huh. I, you know, I'm starting to feel my age a little bit. I, yeah, I have little spots, but yeah, I keep, uh -huh. keeping up that healthy diet and routine has just yeah, I want to do it for sure. Uh, and also, Federer, you know, this whole coronavirus confused me. I'm like, well, is skiing like really that important? Mm -hmm. And is it just going to become this elitist sport now? Because mm -hmm. maybe the flights are going to become crazy, outrageously expensive. I read Fist wants to do the World Cup strictly in Europe, maybe. Mm -hmm. So who knows where, where the sport's actually going? Um, I want to keep helping kids and teaching kids and being around that youthful uh, vibe and being on the snow really excites me after being in the heat for so long. It's been nice to have the contrast, but yeah, I'm definitely shooting in that direction. We'll see what the world decides to do with this coronavirus. Well, well I think that's probably a good place that we could, uh, we could end here. I don't know if there's anything that you wanted to end with any messages or any last uh, thoughts here there there's so much more that I know that I want to talk to you about and ask you about you have a a whole life in Mexico and surfing and and uh, which is a huge passion of yours and I think you know there were questions about the flying ravinos that I wanted to know about but you know I think we could save that uh, for for another time is is there anything uh, that you wanted to say, there'll be young athletes listening to this. There'll be adults who are em embarking on a new time in their life. Anything? I don't know. That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. I no problem. Put you on the spot. For me, I've just been focusing a lot on consciousness and making, you know, everything a little bit more conscious. And I think if we do that as a humanity, you know, we can start really making this planet an amazing place to live. Well, you've brought so much uh, to my life. You brought so much to my daughter and son and wife's life. Uh, you've you've changed our family and a lot of people uh, that we're friends with. Uh, you've changed uh, their lives as well. You've been an incredible influence in so many ways. In fact, oftentimes we hear ourselves, Danielle and I, say, "What would Sarah?" want you to do in this situation and and it helps awesome. us it helps us to parent it helps our children to stay focused during ski season this past year uh, ruby would do the breathing exercises that you taught her uh, at one of your camps and so you are leading the life and having the impact that you've set out uh, to have your, uh, you went from influencing the young members of the U.S. ski team uh, to now influencing the youth who may become future members uh, of the ski team, U.S. ski team out there. So I want to thank you for the impact you've had uh, on our life. And I'm sure there's many, many other people out there who, ah. who feel the same. Thank so, you, Adam. 
but you bet. that's nice. So Sarah, thank you so much for your time yeah. and um, really, awesome. really Came grateful. Yeah. Really grateful for it. And perhaps we do a part two that may actually dive into ski technique. Perhaps we do a part two with Racy Stiegler on as well awesome. uh, to talk awesome. more about, about actual uh, tactical skiing. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we have a lot to think about, a lot to listen to, a lot to learn from your wise words in this interview. So thank you again, Sarah. Hey guys, this is Adam. Thanks again for listening. If you liked this episode, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast and leave a review. Every positive review helps. Also, Remember to subscribe to the podcast so you automatically get episodes downloaded to your podcast library. Please send any questions or feedback to the email conversations at roshreview.com. If there is someone you have in mind who you'd like for me to have a conversation with, please let me know. Don't forget to check out the Rosh blog at roshreview.com backslash blog for more excellent content. And if you are a student, a PA, nurse practitioner, or doctor who is in a training program or residency or has an upcoming exam, take a look at roshreview.com and sign up for a free trial. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you at the next episode. So long.